Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Bowman. Jamie's worked as a legal consultant across Asia, Africa, and Europe for various U.S. and other international aid agencies. She recounts these experiences in her recently published book, Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner. I've really liked the book. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really pleased to be talking to you more about your really interesting book that I just finished reading. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoyed writing it, and it turned out to be the book I really wanted to write. So I'm happy. So can you tell me, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I worked internationally for 20 years, and I learned a lot along the way. Some things I liked, some things I didn't like, and I tried to put it together in a readable, coherent way that people would want to understand what is good about what we do and what is not so good about what we do. And hopefully the current and future change makers will take something from this and act upon it. So I was really trying to be a bit of an activist in an entertaining format. Well, as a very interesting book. Now, you worked as a consultant or even sort of a, I could use the word contractor with a number of different organizations over a number of different years. Can you talk about your experiences in some of the different development countries that you worked in? Okay, so basically there'll be a project ongoing and they'll need a lawyer. So there's a lot of back and forth with the contract. We finalize a contract. I go on site and usually I'm going to review a bunch of laws, review a system, consider a policy, see about capacity building. And as soon as you get on site and as soon as you're prepared, they go, you have to forget that. This is more important. (laughs) So everything you've done for the last week or two is out the window and you start working on something else. Development, I find, is extremely frantic. There's a lot to be done, a lot to be done quickly. There is a real willingness to push things forward faster than they need to be. But it's fun. It's challenging. It can be rewarding if it's done right. But there's ways we can do it better. Tell me about that. When you say that, what what do you think? Like I said, it's frenetic a lot of times. For a long time, we had the what's it called butts in the seat form of funding. It didn't matter who they were, really, as long as they were on site, you could bill for them. And that caused a lot of problems because there are people on the project who shouldn't have been there, number one. And that's that's pretty much great. It was hard to get people to go to Afghanistan, hard to get people to go to Iraq. And so we may not have had our A team in those places. But when we do field a good team, when we do have a good project and it's it's well-defined, we do an exceptional job. How about in some of the more fragile places? You have an opening story about working in South Sudan, and it's pretty gripping. So do you feel like even in the tougher places, we can get our A team? Well, I'd like to think at least I'm a B-plus team. When I went there, my original job was to take the old laws that were in effect before Sharia was implemented by the North. Okay, so that meant the laws that they were in effect in like the 1800s. Some of those laws were over 100 years old. And all they wanted me to do was do a search and replace. And 
I had to push and I had to push for weeks saying this is not what this new country needs. It needs modern laws. It needs to be able to compete. It needs new trade laws. It needs new banking laws. And after a while, yeah, they finally understood that we had to go a different path. But if I hadn't been in development for seven years prior to that, I don't know if I would have the confidence to push for that. So that's one example of going into a really difficult environment and using your common sense to make sure they get what they need. It's really, really interesting. You have several really interesting stories about Ukraine. I can tell you this. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, how it felt to be there. If you went into a shop and you spoke Russian, they wouldn't serve you. And there was a real pushback to, against Russia at the time, but there was this heavy hand of Russia that you felt constantly. If you talk to someone who was Russian, who was on site for one reason or another, they were very clear about it. Ukraine was and always will be part of Russia. That was never anything that the Russians, you know, wiggled on. Sooner or later, it will be back part of Russia. So it's not a surprise, at least to me, and I don't think it's a surprise to a lot of people that this aggressiveness has come up. And tell me about, you know, my experience in Ukraine is that there's been sort of an evolving sense of national identity. I think most Ukrainians don't want to be part of Russia. Do you agree with that? There's a lot of Ukrainian pride, that's for sure. Yeah, I get the sense that there's been a shift in thinking. I agree with what you described. But I wonder if there's been an evolution in thinking within Ukraine in the last 15 or 20 years where, you know, they want to be part of Europe now instead of Russia. If you look at the demographics, people are still leaving Ukraine in high numbers, immigrating wherever they can. So apparently it's better for a lot of people to get out rather than stay and help reform, which is tragic. And then you worked in Russia. Talk about that. They tried to arrest me. It was like in 2000 and 2004, Putin wasn't really as strong as he was now. Uh, the Russians had lost in the Olympics. It was a lot less dramatic than what I hear now. The people I worked with then said they will not go back now. That is too difficult. It's too dangerous for foreigners. But that particular era for me was exceptional. I could walk wherever I wanted. I got to explore the city. The Russians I dealt with were the cream of the crop. The new kids coming out after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they knew English. They were savvy. One story was the first week I was there, they wanted me to go out and do shots of vodka. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And then like, oh, you're hurting our feelings. You're insulting us. I'm like, tough luck. <laughs> the last thing I'm going to do was six people shoot vodka shots. You also were in Afghanistan. Talk about that. I mean, the title of your book is Bike Riding in Kabul. You work in Afghanistan. There are a lot of folks, I don't agree with this, that say that, quote unquote, little was accomplished in Afghanistan, unquote. I don't agree with that, but that's there's a narrative out there that says that I disagree with this. What is your view about U.S. and allied partner efforts in terms of the contributions made in Afghanistan? Whoever said that deserves a good hard slap. I'll be the person to do that. When I was there in 2005, the coalition had only been there a few years. And if you think about it, when the coalition went into the country, the central bank building was a shell. The doors flapped open with the wind. There was no security. The employees that did show up cooked their meals in the hallway. 
because that was the status of the building. So in the few years that we had been there, there was security. There were people there being trained in English. They were being trained in computer sciences. They understood about coming to work. And if you look at it, we really have done two generations of training people to participate and contribute to their economy and their society in a different way. And now they're, they're the middle class, right? Women in Afghanistan right now are protesting. I don't know if that would have happened 20 years ago. It wasn't just the central bank. That's what I know about. It was Department of Education, Department of Agriculture. Uh, to say that we did nothing, we as a coalition did an amazing amount. I agree. I agree. Good. You know, I get the sense, I mean, your time covers a certain period of time in the world. Certainly the last five years, maybe in the last 10, there's been an increasing amount of attention on China as a global soft power competitor and your experiences around the world. How did you bump up against mainland China in your time overseas? Well, I did a couple projects in Cambodia, which are not in the book. And of course, I'm the, I realized how pervasive the Chinese were in Cambodia. In other countries, I knew they were there, but I never sat at a table with an official from China. That said, uh, one time when I was in Iraq, I was trying to get a local visa to stay, and I had to stand in a long line of Chinese sex workers. So they were all in silver hot pants and plastic heels, and I was in a long skirt and loafers. So that was sort of the first time I realized that Chinese were really there in Iraq. You know, in other places, they built roads, they built hospitals. But when I was in Kosovo, they were building a hospital and the whole structure collapsed, trapping some of the Chinese workers inside. And when construction teams from all over the city ran to help them evacuate the Chinese, the Chinese would not allow them close to the site. And there's always suspicion as to why that was. So I have never dealt with a Chinese official, but they're always there. Does development, as you experienced it as a USAID contractor, does development work? And if so, make the case as to why. I'll tell you one thing. Number one, if I can leave a country, especially a polite society country, and have official be able to say no, that sounds like small potatoes, but it's really important. The officials need to be able to prioritize their reform efforts and no one to back away from something. No one to say no. The other thing is, is that when you go to post-communist countries, a lot of the officials you deal with are unable to make a judgment call. And that's particularly important in things like bank supervision, bank penalties. It's very difficult for someone who has never had to make that kind of call to do it. And you sit there side by side and you give them the confidence to be able to determine what's correct and what's not correct. And that's really important in places like Mongolia, Ukraine, Russia to some extent, and the other post-communist countries. So there was a saying, the tallest nail gets hit first. You have to dissuade them from that, that no, this is their job. If they're gonna be a supervisor in the central bank, this is part of what they need to take on and do well in the best interest of the country. Okay, so one of the things I was curious about is you write, about you are a professional woman, often in traditional societies in some difficult places. Can you talk about what that was like? Well, in some ways, Western women are a third sex. 
Um, and, then, and they yeah. treat you differently. And I took full advantage of that. I mean, I was allowed in meetings. I probably, if I had been a local woman, I wouldn't have been allowed in. But I did have um, some situations in Afghanistan. I was supposed to work with a local male attorney on writing the standards law because they were trying to, you know, bring it up to international best practices. And he walks in the room and he says, I, I will not sit at a table with you. And I'm like, that's fine. So I sat down and he thought he was going to sit down and I was going to stand. Well, that didn't go over so well. So I said, OK, OK, OK. So I'll write a draft law and I'll bring it for you to look at. So I did that. Next day, he read the law. He understood it. All of a sudden, he could sit down with me and we could go over it step by step by step. So it was just a matter in that particular case to be a little patient. He had to get to know me. That was one instance. It's not a lot of instances. Well, look, I, you know, I really enjoyed the book, Jamie. I want to congratulate you on it. Tell folks the title of the book and where you can get the book, Jamie. It's Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner. It's available at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon. I'm getting really good reviews. People seem to enjoy it. It's particularly good for the young ones going into the industry right now. It doesn't tell you how to think, but it will tell you the types of things that you need to prepare for, the surprises that will come up. And it, it alerts you to the fact that you're not going to be exempt from toxic bosses, bad consultants, dangers. You have to take care of yourself. So it's a good blueprint if you're going to go into the business. Well, I'm really, really happy you did it. Congratulations. It's a wonderful book. And I encourage people to go read it. So thanks a lot, Jamie. Thanks for the time. And let's stay in touch. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 